So this past week, Merriam-Webster released a list of 690 words or phrases that will be included in the new dictionary. Some of these you will probably recognize, words like jorts or smashburger, bracketology, those are all in the dictionary now. You might need to be a little younger or find a young person to tell you what riz, mid, or bussin means. But these are all terms that are actually in the dictionary now, but my favorite one goes back to a football player from the Seattle Seahawks named Marshawn Lynch, and if you remember him, you know what term is now in the dictionary, and that is beast mode. He uh, just kind of coined this phrase, it's now in the dictionary, here's the official term, it's an extremely aggressive or energetic style or manner that someone such as an athlete adopts temporarily as to overpower an opponent in a fight or competition. Uh, if you go into beast mode, if you're described as a beast, as an athlete, that's a compliment. But if you're in the book of Revelation and you're described as the beast, that's not such a good thing, okay? That's where we're going to be today. I want you to open your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 13. And once again, we'll cover a good bit of ground today. So let's jump in with the first 10 verses here. It says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of his heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This beast described in this passage is the one that we often refer to as the Antichrist. Although, interestingly, that term is not used in Revelation. It is used in some of John's other writings. For example, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, it says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. It's important to understand what he's saying here. There are many Antichrists who have come. There is one, if you were to think of it in terms of kind of a capital A Antichrist, right? The Antichrist. There is one who is to come, but there are many along the way. And that explains why throughout history, people have thought that they saw the Antichrist. They saw an Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. He is yet to come. And during the, the time of the Reformers, they thought it was the Pope. The Pope was, was the Antichrist. Of course, uh, when Hitler rose to power, many people, this is the Antichrist. Or Stalin, this is the Antichrist. Now, it's either Joe Biden or Donald Trump, depending on your political persuasion, right, that is the Antichrist. We have all these people that we keep trying to identify 
as the Antichrist. What we do know is this. There are many Antichrists that come. Anti just means opposed to. And so that leads me to the first thing that I want us to see about the Antichrist kingdom. And that is the Antichrist kingdom is oppositional. He's opposed to everything of God. That's why we keep seeing these blasphemous names that are mentioned over and over again in this chapter. He has blasphemous names written on his head. He blasphemes the God of heaven and those who dwell in heaven. I mean, we see this throughout the book of Revelation. I said last Sunday, you have to give Satan an A for effort, but an F for intelligence. Because he's trying to oppose and overcome God. And that's never going to happen. But he keeps trying. Listen to the way it's described in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. That's another word for the Antichrist. A man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, and he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, so you get this picture of this human being, this individual, the beast, that will attempt to become God, that will take, try to take the place of God. It is an oppositional kingdom. He is opposed to everything that is of God. And that's what Revelation 13 describes. Everything about his kingdom is designed to oppose Christ and his people. But the second thing that I want you to see is that his kingdom is also political. It says that there are ten horns and seven heads that represent political power. I mean, this is interpreted for, sometimes we wonder, okay, what does this mean? What are the horns and the heads and all that? And, and sometimes we wonder, sometimes the Bible just tells us straight up what it means. If you go to chapter 17 of Revelation, verses 9, 9 and 10, say that the seven heads are seven kings. And then it says five of them have fallen, one currently is, and one is yet to come. If you're following along in the online bulletin, I have listed out this so that you, I mean, you can jot this stuff down if you want, but it's already there for you in the bulletin. Uh, this is what most commentators think he's referring to when he talks about the seven kings. The one that currently is, keep in mind that this was written late first century, so this is Rome. The, the, the king that currently is is Rome. The five that have already been, the five that have already fallen, likely refer to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. And then that leaves one more kingdom that is to come, which is the kingdom of the Antichrist, that is the, the, the future one that has not yet been fulfilled. And then the ten horns with the ten diadems are also interpreted for us. Revelation 17, 12 says, And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. All right, so you got this, the seven heads, seven Rulers, six of them, well, five of them passed, one current at the time. Now there's six of them are in the past. One that's in the future. But then you've got these, these ten that will rule simultaneously. So the beast, the Antichrist, will be in charge of all of them. But at the same time, there will be ten others who rule alongside him. And it's interesting the way they are described. This, this kingdom, this beast, is described in verse 2. It says that he's like a leopard, will have the feet like feet of a bear and the mouth of a lion. 
Now, Revelation does not directly interpret this for us, so we should ask the question, is there anything else in Scripture that speaks to this topic? And I've said this before, we'll see if you're paying attention. What is the one Old Testament book that is the most important book to help us interpret the book of Revelation? What is it? Daniel. There you go. Yes, Daniel. So Daniel is is our go-to quite often. Daniel chapter 7. Verses 2 through 7 says, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four beasts came out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So you see Daniel describing these beasts. Three of them are, are described specifically, and one of them is just this beast that is just terrifying, but he doesn't compare it to anything. Well, the three animals that are described, the lion, the bear, and the leopard. And it's the same ones that are mentioned here in Revelation 13. So here's how I understand what he's saying here. He's saying if you were to take these previous rulers, these previous kingdoms, and just take the worst of the worst and fuse it all together into one, that's what it's going to be like. When the kingdom of the Antichrist comes, it's going to be just this fusion of all the worst qualities of all of these previous kingdoms. And, and, and it says that this beast or this antichrist will receive what appears to be a mortal wound, but the mortal wound is healed. Now, what does that mean? And we don't know exactly what it means. We can speculate. Maybe there's some type of assassination attempt, and it appears that, this, that the antichrist is going to die, but recovers in a way that may seem to be miraculous. And so people will know that, that the beast has recovered and it will cause them to worship the beast even more. In fact, their, their response, it says there, will be, who is like the beast? Which is clearly an expression of worship. So much of what we see here, we see the, you know, Satan's influence is to take things that are somewhat like God and twist them and turn them. Exodus 15, 11 says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Isn't it interesting that the phrase there is real similar to that, who is like the beast. Instead of who is like you, God, who is like the beast. And they're worshiping this beast. And verse 5 says he speaks blasphemous words. He's allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. We're talking about the second half of the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation period here. For 42 months, things go downhill really fast. In fact, verse 7 says that the beast is allowed to make war on Christians and conquer them. He's going to be an extremely powerful ruler. This is going to be a very dark period for God's people. And we see the beginnings of that today. We see these kinds of things where, where, where God's people, where the nation of Israel, even now, watch the news, you'll see things happening literally over the weekend where, where there's just going to be this continual just attack and it's going to get worse and worse. 
And we might read something like that and we think, how in the world would so many people follow someone like that? How would people you know, want to follow that type of a leader? And I thought that uh, there was some really good insight by Timothy Keller. This is what he said. He said, it is the, t- the subtle tendency of human societies to turn good political causes into counterfeit gods. We can look upon our political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine, and turn our political activism into a kind of religion. And I just have to tell you, that's not too hard to imagine in our world today. In fact, I see this all the time. Even those who would claim to follow Christ seem to be looking more to political leaders and political policies for salvation than looking to Jesus. To the point where as long as someone advances their political cause, they don't really care about issues of morality or character or who the individual is. I mean, this is not hard for us to imagine. People getting behind someone and saying, hey, this person is going the direction that we want to see us go. And so they just follow him. And this beast is, this antichrist is in charge of the entire world. And only those who are Christ followers do not submit to him. Now, does that mean that as Christians we should ignore issues of politics? No, we should be involved. We should let our voice be heard. But I want to remind you again, our hope is not in politics or in any political leader. Our hope is in Jesus. And that, that's, that's where we need to uh, remind ourselves who we're serving. All right, let's keep going. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and the inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who had not worshipped the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. So in this section, we're introduced to a second beast. The role of the second beast is to force everyone to worship The Antichrist, or the first beast. So the next thing I want you to see about the kingdom of the Antichrist is that it also is religious. His kingdom is religious. There is this religious component here where they are forced to worship the beast. The second beast, it says, uh, has two horns representing some level of power. He's not as powerful as the first beast, but he is powerful. But it's interesting, isn't it? It says two horns like a lamb. What do we see about Jesus throughout the book of Revelation? He's referred to as the Lamb of God, right? Over and over and over again. So again, it's this, hey, let's get a little bit close here and let's find some similarity to what real truth is. Well, he has horns like a lamb, but he speaks like a dragon. And it's very clear that the voice behind this second beast is the voice of Satan. This is all of this, all the the power, everything is the power of Satan. And verse 13 says... That he has given power to perform some counterfeit miracles, like making fire come down from heaven to earth, similar to what God did through Elijah. It's almost as if the second beast is a counterfeit Holy Spirit. In fact, 
I would argue that in, in Revelation 13, we get an entire counterfeit trinity. Because we have Satan, the dragon, who is seeking to be like God, the Father. We have the Antichrist, who obviously is seeking to be like Christ, like Jesus, the Son. And then we have this second beast, who is performing miracles and seeking to be like the Holy Spirit. It's a counterfeit Holy Spirit. And, and, I mean, a counterfeit trinity. And then you get to the number of his name at the end of the passage. And it says the, the, the number is the number 666 because 6 is man's number. Uh, let, me, let me tell you how I understand what he's saying here. Some people have gotten into some weird stuff of, you know, you take the numbers and it spells out. People figure out it spells out Nero and all this stuff. No, I, I think the point that he's making here is that mankind was created on the sixth day. These are human beings that are trying to replicate the Trinity. Six, six, and six. There's three of them, human beings, trying to be like God. And it's interesting because almost everybody, religious or not, is familiar with 666, right? And they don't want to have anything to do with it. Everybody knows that that's a number you just kind of stay away from, which reminds me of a, a funny little story I had to pass on to you. When I, the first car that I got... When I turned 16, my dad, uh, I think in 1979, he had bought uh, a Datsun 210B uh, because it was economical and it got good gas mileage. So he drove this little car for about six years. And, and back then, cars were not designed to last that long, right? So I got the, the hand-me-down car after about six years when I started driving. And this little Datsun 210 was the wimpiest car you've ever seen in your life. And I was thankful to have a car. It got me from point A to point B most of the time. It just didn't get there very quickly. And when I was driving to school in the morning, I had to go up a, a long hill. And I'm not exaggerating when I say I could barely make it to the top of the hill. I'd be going about 10 or 15 miles an hour by the time I got to the top of the hill. So I went from a completely powerless car to the next car that I got was a Mustang with a 5.0 liter engine. So I went from one extreme to the other. Now there were a lot of cool things about driving that Mustang and a lot of very memorable things about that car. But perhaps the most memorable thing about that Mustang was the license plate. That's right, people. Your pastor drove a car with a license plate, 666, on the license plate. Now, I'll let you make of that what you will. And if you decide not to come back next Sunday, I'll totally understand, okay? Now, just in case you're wondering, I am not the Antichrist, but I, I did have that number in my license. Most of us know that number. It's like, okay, stay away from that. We don't want to have anything to do with that as a teenager, I kind of thought it was funny. But um, in this passage, it's not, not something to be joked about, right? This is serious stuff. I mean, this, this is uh, a, a major time that, that Christians are going to be severely persecuted, where a lot of bad stuff is happening. Uh, but it, it is a bit interesting. Anybody read this and go, how in the world would this second beast have the ability to perform what appears to be miracles. That, that seems really odd, right? But, you know, that's not the first time we see that in the Bible. There are examples of people performing these counterfeit types of miracles. I mean, go back to Moses. And when Moses, you know, turned the, the, uh, the staff he threw down, turned into a snake, and turned water into blood, caused a plague of frogs, you know, all three of those things, it says that the, um, the, the, those who practice their secret arts were able to replicate these same types of things. Don't understand exactly how that worked or what they did, but somehow they were able to replicate that. Now, there are limits because it got to a certain point where they were not able 
to replicate the miracles that God was doing. So that there are limits to that. But this second beast is given the authority to perform some what looks to, to be miracles. Verse 15, or actually at the end of verse 14, they make an image of the beast. Verse 15 says, it's allowed to give breath to the image so that the image of the beast might speak. Now, here's the question. Does that literally mean that? It, uh, I mean, it could be some type of ventriloquism or some type of trick that they were doing, or maybe this is another kind of a false miracle of some sorts. Uh, but whatever was happening here, the people were being forced to worship the beast. Sounds real similar to what Nebuchadnezzar did, again, back in the book of Daniel. We keep going back to Daniel, but when he built the, the 90-foot-tall gold image and everybody was forced to bow down and worship, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship the beast, in that case, they were thrown into this fiery furnace. God rescued them miraculously, but that isn't always going to happen. In fact, what we see, unfortunately, in Revelation is that a lot of God's people are going to be put to death. A lot of them will be martyred. And those that aren't martyred will suffer immensely. In fact, it tells us in verse 16 that everyone, it says, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, everybody are required to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead so that they can buy or sell. So that leads me to the next thing that we see about the kingdom of the Antichrist, and that is it's an economic kingdom. There is economic power here, and those that do not cooperate are going to either be killed, number one, but the, the believers that are not killed may be starved to death. They're not allowed to, to buy and sell. So what is the mark of the beast? It's the age-old question, right? A lot of theories out there. Do y'all remember this? y'all remember when barcodes came out? And a lot of Christians started freaking out, going, oh, it's the mark of the beast. You know, you can scan this little code and all this information's there and everybody's freaking out. And then we realize that it makes check out the grocery store a lot easier, so everybody got over it. So now, now we're kind of comfortable, you know, with the barcode thing. And I, I mean, I don't know what it is. Maybe now it's Apple Pay. You know, Apple Pay has got to be the mark of the beast. I, I don't know what it is. But all of that proves the point that it's not crazy to imagine a scenario where if you don't have some identifying factor that you would be excluded you know, economically and not able to buy and sell. I mean, that, that sounds kind of reasonable based on what we know about digital currencies and all those kinds of things. So we don't know exactly what it is, what the mark of the beast is, but we do know that it's coming and that it will cause great persecution for those who do not receive this mark. It says it, on the right hand, or notice again on the forehead. You remember the forehead before? The seal of God on the people of God was to be on their forehead. In fact, we're going to read a little bit more about it again. Let's continue on a little bit. Chapter 14. It says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on harps. And they, were, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn the song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and for the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless." These 144,000, we've seen them referenced before from the 12 tribes of Israel. These apparently are martyrs 
those whose lives were taken. They've come to faith after the beginning of the tribulation period, but they have died for their faith. They're now in heaven. They're before the throne of God. And they are singing songs once again about how worthy he is, which again is remarkable, thinking what they have been through and what they have suffered for their faith. But it's a great reminder to us that no matter what we have to endure, in the end it's all worth it. Let me say that again. No matter what we have to endure, in the end, it's all worth it. As believers, the book of Revelation, if it doesn't tell us anything else, it tells us the reward that we will one day receive as followers of Christ. It makes anything that we endure worth it. And so here are these people that are singing this song that nobody else knows. And then let me summarize the rest of the chapter because we're, we're running low on time. But just to summarize what takes place after that in verse 6 and following we see something that we don't see anywhere else in the Bible. And that is angels actually begin to proclaim the gospel. It says that there is a, a first angel who will proclaim uh, to every, uh, everyone on earth, every nation, tribe, language, and people. He's talking to them about repentance. He's saying that you need to fear God and turn away from your sinfulness. Then there's a second angel who talks about how Babylon has fallen. Then there's a third angel that comes and says that those who receive the mark of the beast will be punished in severe ways. In fact, there's a, a phrase here um, that ought to just make our spine tingle when we read it uh, because it, it, it talks about in verse 10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Wow. I do not want to receive the full brunt of the wrath of God. And thankfully I won't. No, you won't either if you're a follower of Jesus. That's been taken care of for us. But the, the third angel is saying, look, you had better, you better listen, you better repent. And just as those who refuse to receive the mark of the beast were being persecuted by the beast and were being tormented by the beast. Now the tables get flipped and those who do receive the mark of the beast are going to be tormented by God. And the wrath of God is going to be poured out on them and it is going to be more severe than anything we could possibly imagine. In fact, the end of the chapter ends, and I mean this is not a pleasant thing, but we probably need some perspective. If I just skip ahead to the end of verse 19 when it talks about the great winepress of the wrath of God verse 20 says and the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia there's blood everywhere because the wrath of God is being poured out on mankind now this is serious serious stuff now we read that and here's my, my application today here's where I want to, to end is just to come back to this reminder, number one, that if you know Jesus, you don't have to worry about this. One, the church will be raptured, but two, Christ has already taken the wrath of God on our behalf. So as followers of Jesus, we don't have to worry about it. If you don't yet know Christ, this is, is this or something like it is, is what you're headed toward. And that's why it's so important to trust him, to give your life to him so that you don't have to, to go into that. You see... 
most of us look at things like this and we think, oh yeah, well these are horrible people and the Antichrist and all this terrible stuff and the blasphemy. That's not me. I'm a pretty good person. And we compare ourselves and you know by our standards, yeah, you probably are better than other people around you. But here's the problem. God does not judge us by our standards. God judges us by his standards. And his standard is perfection. So the only way for us to be right with God, the only way for us to find forgiveness is through Christ, because Christ is the only one who meets that standard on our behalf. Now, some of you may hear that and think, oh, well, God wouldn't even want me. I, wouldn't, I don't think I'm better than anyone else. In fact, I'm so bad, God wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. And I would say to you that that's not true either, because Christ died for everyone. It keeps talking about every people and language and nation and tribe over and over and over again. That phrase is reiterated, that God wants the relationship with you. And I just want to encourage you today, if you don't know that you know that you have that relationship with him, to talk to us about that. But I want to encourage those of you that do have a relationship with him. I just want to ask you this question as we prepare to close, and that is, are you being faithful sharing the good news? Two weeks ago, we talked about this. We ended our service. We asked you to write down names of people you're praying for, and we've been praying along with you for those individuals. That was encouraging. It's been a couple of weeks now. How are you doing? Are you still praying for them? Have you had a conversation with them? Have you shared some of your personal story with somebody that you've been praying for? I just want to remind you, when we read this stuff, it should motivate us to do that. Even when it comes to those that we think are so far gone that there's no hope, there's no way they would ever have anything to do with God. I don't know how many of you saw this story. Somebody had to bring it to my attention because I, I tend to miss stuff like this. But there is a... Um, a tattoo artist, her name is Kat Von D. Some of the, our younger people would know who she is, if you don't. Um, there's a picture of her, actually, from her, her um, she called Goth Glam Wedding. She was all into tattoos, but, but, but the main thing about her, she was really into the occult. That was just part of her thing. Not that that means if you have tattoos, you're into the occult, but she, this particular person was. It just had nothing to do with God. Let me throw up a second picture on the screen there, Victor. She got baptized this week. Pretty cool story of somebody that said, I'm going to leave all that stuff behind and I want to follow Jesus. It's a great reminder to me, never give up on anybody. Never assume that somebody that wants to have nothing to do with God never will. But continue to pray and continue to look for opportunities to, sh to share with them and just talk about the love of Christ. It's so powerful. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you will remind us today of the life-changing power of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness. I pray that we're, we're, we're just sharing that, that good news as actively as we possibly can. Lord, even now, bring to mind those that, that, that are in our path that, that may not know you. And for any of us in the room that don't personally know you, I pray that right now is that moment to know you and to trust you fully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.